Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The Fed is the least popular agency, except for the IRS. The economy needs someone who, as the saying goes, leans into the wind when everyone else is going with the wind. And that's what the Federal Reserve did. What if we had a show about solutions? Not the same old left versus right. I am right, right. and you are wrong. Yeah. Boring. <laughs> yeah, something new. Yeah, something new. How to make the world a better place. Yeah. How, How do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Today we look at a controversial example of secretive centralized power, America's central bank, the Federal Reserve. You know, a lot of people are suspicious of the Fed's power, and that's a suspicion that goes back to even before it was founded. Opponents say the Fed protects bankers and really should be abolished. Yeah, but you know, every other nation has some form of a central bank. And if you look at how economies perform when they don't have one, it's a little scary. So we're going to look at why there's so much controversy about the Fed in America. Our guest is Roger Lowenstein, author of America's Bank, The Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer, with us in the studio. And Roger Lowenstein is joining us via Skype from Newton, Massachusetts. I think that's outside Boston. Roger, welcome. Pleasure to be on the show. First, a really simple, fundamental question, and that is, what does the Fed actually do? Well, the Fed is a banker to banks. The same way people go to banks, either to loan money if they have extra money or borrow money, banks go to the Federal Reserve. It's the repository of the nation's credit and banking reserve. Some banks need money and borrow from the Fed. Some banks have extra and loan it to the Fed. The Fed is also the steward to the nation's economy. It sets the short-term interest rate that banks borrow from each other overnight. And that, in turn, filters through to all the other interest rates that affect uh, our economic daily lives. Can you explain what the short-term interest rate affects? The short-term interest rate affects anyone who borrows money in the short term, but it also might be um, on your mortgage. Many mortgages uh, are no longer fixed. Now they're tied to the short-term interest rate. Or if you have um, money in a money market fund and you're receiving interest, these days, that interest is as close to zero uh, as it can get. With uh, You probably can't even see it without a magnifying glass because <laughs> it moves through the, the entire economy. Why is it so important to our economy, to our daily lives? One reason we just saw in 2008, the banking system failed. The private banks, one after another, were going under. We had more than 10% of the people in this country unemployed. Lord knows uh, where that would have stopped had the Fed not come in. During times of stress, what happens is 
every bank, every private bank, reasons that it better draw in reserves and stop lending to protect itself. It, it's a very natural self-protective instinct. And so the economy needs someone who, as the saying goes, leans into the wind when everyone else is going with the wind. And that's what the Federal Reserve did. And 100 years ago, 100 years before this crisis, we had a similar crisis in 1907, except at that point there was no Federal Reserve and the country only had the efforts of one loan financier, J.P. Morgan, to lend. And when he was tapped out, uh, you know, banks started closing by the uh, by the dozen. So we really had a crisis that went on and on in that country. Banks literally ran out of money. So your book, uh, America's Bank, it looks at the creation of the Federal Reserve, and it tells a history of a lot. Maybe a lot of people don't understand, which was how tumultuous our financial system was before the Federal Reserve was created. Yes, the same way people didn't want a strong tie between the individual states in the beginning of the country. So we had the Articles of Confederation. And that didn't work. But Jefferson and people like that had just rebelled against an English king and were afraid of having a strong government. They didn't want a government bank, as had England with the Bank of England or France with the Bank of France. And it took 100 years for America to get over this very Jeffersonian and also Jacksonian from Andrew Jackson fear that if we had a big central bank in Washington, it would be against the people, it would be on the side of Wall Street, and so on. You said something I think that's really important for, for all of us to understand, and that is that when there's a financial crisis and some banks are on the verge of failure, they're far less likely to lend. So money gets really tight and the whole financial system could be on the verge of, of shutting down. So that, for instance, if you go to your bank, ATM, and withdraw cash, it won't be there. So in 1907, it wasn't there. Banks began setting up limits. They told people you could only take out, some of them took, said $10 a day. Some said $50 a week. Some said we'll approve or not withdrawals on a case-by-case basis. Many started printing homemade script just to substitute for money because they didn't have any money. So other- if you traveled from one part of the country to the other, would you actually have to ch- change banknotes? I mean, what was it like back in the 19th century? You'd find very different rates of interest. You'd find... Um, uh, well, early, before the Civil War, you travel with a valise full of very different pieces of paper, literally thousands of different types of money. Uh, retail merchants would have, they were called counterfeit detectors, guides to, to tell you, um, you know, what, re- what real money in other states that you might not be familiar with look like and, and maybe what some of the closed counterfeits look like. They're just carrying all this paper. Uh, it was a real mess. By the early 1900s, we were down to about seven different types of money, but we didn't have one money market. So the cost of borrowing money in Kansas City would be different than in Dallas, would be different in New York, would be different in some farm town. Besides the crisis function of the Federal Reserve, someone has to decide how much circulation, how much money is in circulation. Before the Federal Reserve, we only had the gold standard. The amount of gold that was uh, in the country's banks determined how much cash circulated. And that system, although I know there are a lot of you know, diehard gold bugs in this country, <laughs> even today, didn't really work. In fact, if you looked at the so-called um, uh, golden era of the gold standard, the last three decades of the 19th century, we had deflation year after year, 30 years in a row. It really didn't work. We, the, the economy became, and today usually is, way too involved and complicated to have extraction of metal 
determine the amount of money in circulation. I think this is a good point in the show for some full disclosure on my part. My father was an economist of the University of Chicago School and actually worked for the Federal Reserve. So I kind of got this stuff around the, you know, the dinner table from a, from a young age. And he certainly convinced me that the ability to control the money supply, the amount of money in circulation, was absolutely crucial to preventing inflation, fighting recessions. And he was a huge appointer of the gold standard for just the exact reasons you say. It was it was completely inflexible. And when there was a crisis or even just a slowdown, right when, when the economy needs more money to keep going, to keep people hired, uh, the money starts to dry up. Right? That's right. I mean, I, I, I wish your father were here. I, I think I'd agree with him. Since gold, there's been a long series of... Um, different tools that the Federal Reserve has tried to use. Well, what you're talking about is the different ways. I mean, the money supply turns out to be trickier to measure than one would think. So there were all these different uh, metrics people would use um, to try to sort that out. One of Bernanke's innovations was just to say, maybe the best metric to use is what's the rate of inflation? Because after all, that's what we're trying to prevent. There from being too much or even too little of it. So if we have the right amount, and he's he said that's about 2% of inflation, so the money, you know, a dollar keeps 98% of its value. Then we must have more or less the right amount of money out there. And if, the, you know, the value of money starts to plummet, then obviously we have too much money. And if we start to get deflation, uh, too little. Miranda Schaefer. Who were the people that were for the central bank and who were the people that were against the idea of a central bank? Curiously enough, farmers, uh, people who lived away from the Northeast, uh, people who really needed more cash circulation could have benefited, I think, from a central bank. Nonetheless, they were very wary of Washington institutions, New York institutions, just the same way today that the Tea Party draws uh, strength in areas, say, in the west of the country, the south. Those same areas were very anti-central bank. Going back to the time of Andrew Jackson, who, who got rid of a, a, a predecessor of the central bank, so-called the second bank of the United States, Andrew Jackson, of course, drew his strength from frontier America and the southern part of the country. Uh, the supporters were Wall Street bankers who realized that the United States, after being you know, a developing nation for most of the 19th century, finally in the early 1900s, had what it took to be a first-rate world financial power, except that we did not have a central bank, therefore really were second-rate, in fact, to the European powers. In fact, the dollar was less traded internationally than relatively minor currencies, such as the lira and the, you know, the, the, the Belgian franc. Why were we second rate? Why did that matter so much when we were this extraordinarily quick-growing country where we're starting to make a great amount of industrial products as well as exporting large amounts of agricultural goods? Glad you asked that, because we had a very volatile financial system for lack of a central bank. In fact, every fall, cash drained into the countryside to finance the harvest. Farmers needed cash to pay field hands and run their equipment and so on. And because there was no lender of last resort, the cities uh, were starved for cash. Interest rates in New York would shoot up. Sometimes they'd go up to 100%. And uh, these reformers, in particular, one named Paul Warburg, said, this is crazy. Uh, You should have a central bank to uh, even out these shortages of credit so that we don't have these annual um, uh, little mini panics, which sometimes became full-blown panics and depression. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So why is your book relevant today? Well, the book is relevant today because we're living in a period when the Federal Reserve is probably uh, less popular and more suspect than any time since it was first created in 1913. You've got um, bills in Congress that would subject very uh, sensitive and uh, politically sensitive uh, interest rate and monetary policy decisions to uh, the Congress, meaning leave it over to elected politicians. According to public opinion polls, the Fed is the uh, least popular agency, save for any, uh, except for the uh, IRS, which, of course, always... Yeah, yeah, the IRS is certainly in the toilet. (laughs) Always uh, ranks last. You've got two candidates uh, announced running for president, uh, Rand Paul and uh, Ted Cruz, who want to basically abolish the Fed. And you've got half of America uh, upset because the Fed came in and uh, bailed out the system after the 2008 crash, which, by the way, I have to add, I think is, is rather strange. Had the Fed failed to come in and be the lender of last resort and save the system, I think the anger would be um, very understandable. I have trouble understanding, you know, you have a big fire, the fireman comes, he puts out the fire, and then people want to do away with the fire department. I think this relates back to the same sort of um, suspicion bordering on paranoia that Americans have always had for central banks, going back to uh, Thomas Jefferson's day. Yeah. So our show is about solutions, and and so this that makes this one a little bit different because what so, was so interesting to me about your book is. It's about how these reformers got together and they, against the odds, they managed to get the act passed that that ultimately created the Fed. And it's worked pretty well overall and prevented some of the chaos that we saw. Yeah, let's let's be clear. I mean, they they really uh, blew it going into the crisis. Whatever uh, laurels we give them for uh, rescuing the system uh, in 2008, I think they deserve a whole lot of criticism for letting the crisis develop. Yes. Okay, well, solutions. I mean, how do we prevent that kind of thing from happening again? One thing, the Federal Reserve was set up as a, um, a banker's bank with run by, in all of the districts, uh, bankers. If you look at the individual Federal Reserve uh, banks now around the country, in, in Boston and Dallas and Atlanta and so on, 
they're mostly all now run by university people, academics, economists. I have this sort of idea that uh, these banks should be run by bankers and that who do you want to, to, to tell whether or not uh, the loans that uh, banks are issuing are good loans or sound loans and so on. I, I think we've gotten a little too far away from having people are trained to evaluate loans. So you're saying that the academic end of economics has come to dominate a little bit more it de- than it, it definitely has. I mean, there, there are academics uh, you know, spilling out of the Federal Reserve Building in Washington. But that's, <laughs> that's, the system was created to be two sides. One was the public service side in Washington, and the other was a series of actually working banks who would supply the country with credit around the country. Do we also need more more business people on uh, these uh, regional feds uh, so that they actually have, they really have a sense of the real world difference between the economy in, say, Boston and the economy in the Southwest, in Texas? Well, we have business people on them. And one thing I was going to say about solutions, at least solutions to the perceptual problem, uh, I think the Fed could do a better job of letting people know what it is and who it is, particularly in their districts. And the example I'll use is is mine here in Boston, where there's a, a restaurant I love to go to, Legal Seafood, mm-hmm. uh, very popular here. And the president of Legal Seafood, a guy named Roger Berkowitz, is on the board of the local Fed. I said to him one day, you know, you, you know a whole lot about um, shrimp and fresh tuna, but you know, what do you know about interest rates? And, and you know, he said very simply, I, I tell the local Fed what's going on in the local labor market. Who would know better than someone who runs... 20 or 30 restaurants, uh, what sort of wage pressures there are uh, developing in the Boston area. And then when, the, when Eric Rosengren, the, the president of the Boston Fed, goes down to Washington to tell them what the economic environment is in his district, he's armed with the knowledge from uh, people like Roger Berkowitz. And so I think that does reflect the sort of uh, constitutional compromise of having the, a hub in, in Washington with input from the periphery. And I think that's very important. By the way, some of the solutions that have been proposed by others have been to strip uh, the Bostons and the Atlantas uh, and the Kansas cities of their power. And I think that'd be a, a, a very big mistake. You also talk about transparency. And it's funny because this is something my dad used to rail about. That was what he saw as the excessive secrecy of the Fed. And I think it's better today than it was back then. But you, you feel they could still do better in, in letting the public know more about how they're thinking and where they're going. Well, I, I, I'm not sure. Ben Bernanke went a long way. The, the Fed is you know, way more transparent uh, than in the era when your uh, dad was on it. The minutes are released after a few years. I mean, you know, we see a whole lot. I'm not in favor of saying every time they go into a room, the whole world should know what everybody said immediately. Because, you know, I think when the, when the governors meet to the debate interest rates, there has to be some protection against immediate publicity to have a to have an open and frank discussion. There is a bill, of course, called Audit the Fed. And that's really a misnomer because the Fed is audited. We know exactly what's in the Fed's books. There are no secrets there. What that bill would ask for is to have the Congress be able to supervise the monetary uh, policy decisions. Yeah, let me ask you about that. I mean, because the Fed values, prizes its independence from political forces. So one idea in Congress is the Fed should have to say, here's the rule we're following. And, uh, you know, we set interest rates. And if we deviate from that, we have to explain why. You know, do we want to take the flexibility away from the Fed? I really don't think so. I just think rules can really get you into trouble. The, the, the investment banks were all following what they thought were uh, very good rules to assess risk uh, when they loaded up their balance sheets with mortgage securities because uh, mortgage securities were supposed to be very low risk. Uh, we know how that one uh, ended. <laughs> the, the other idea is just to 
put the Fed under almost daily scrutiny of the Congress when it sets interest rates. I, I really got to ask you, do you want people running for office in their districts saying, I promise, you know, free money forever. You'll be able to get a mortgage cheap. I'm going to tell the Federal Reserve what to do. There's a reason why, although the Fed is subject to Congress, there's a layer of independence so that uh, politically elected people aren't making the daily decisions on interest rates. Right. I don't think it'd be a good idea. Yeah, to- there's all this antipathy towards the Fed right now, but fundamentally, it's not that broke. Maybe the most important thing is not to try to fix what really overall works pretty well. It's not that broke. It's not that broke. By the way, I'll, I'll add one area, which I don't know if it's a fix, but it's a concern of mine about the Fed, which is we've spoken about the independence of the Fed. In crises, the Fed tends to become very close to the government for, for obvious reasons. Uh, um, you know, During wars, uh, the government has a need for uh, very cheap money. The Fed uh, tends to oblige because uh, you know, they don't want to be a problem for the government during uh, uh, crises. Same thing during financial crises. You see, as in the last crises, the the Fed and the Treasury working uh, hand in hand. But as we now have, you know, we're five years past the financial crisis, for the Fed to be independent, that also means independent from the executive branch. And it means that uh, at some point, Janet Yellen is going to have to take uh, tough decisions and decisions that uh, Jack Lew at the Treasury and, and you know, the, uh, the president of the White House and so on may not be in favor of. But, but the Fed is not only independent from Congress, it, it's also got to be independent from the executive branch. And to maintain its credibility, I think, going forward, that's very important. Yes. Roger Lowenstein making the case for an independent Fed. And uh, his book is America's Bank, the Epic Struggle to Create the Federal Reserve. I'm Jim Meggs. And I'm Richard Davies. And this is How Do We Fix It? Thanks. Thanks a lot for joining us, Roger. It was uh, very good to be on the show. Just a quick reminder that we really love listener comments and reviews, and especially five stars on iTunes. Uh, Here's one review we got from Jizz Rock Reviews. With the variety of challenges we face in the world, says Jizz, and I hope I've pronounced your name right, it's great to find a podcast offering ideas, forwarding solutions, a range of topics to help the situations you may find yourselves in. Are we sure we want to quote a reader named Jizz? Why not? Why not? That's what that's what it says. <laughs> anyway, apart from the reviews, please download our show. It really makes a difference to us. And any comments, feedback, visit our website, howdowefixit.me, and let us know how we're doing. Jim, let me start off with a story. When I was a financial business reporter at ABC News in 2008, when the stock market was collapsing, and there were a few weeks there where literally large companies like McDonald's didn't know if they'd have enough short-term money to pay their employees. It really was a frightening time, and I think we forget sometimes uh, the role that was played by the Fed in stabilizing the system and making sure there was money for to pay people. Right. You know, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about this, and, and maybe a lot of the critics of the Fed, they're a little utopian in their, in their idea that, like, oh, in the past, you know, these insiders didn't have so much power. But in the past, we actually had, if you look at the 19th century, they called them panic back then 
every few years they would have this huge crisis and, and companies got a business and people would lose their life savings. That was not a good system. The current system may not be perfect, but I'm, I'm very concerned about the populist backlash against what I would consider one of the few big government institutions that actually works pretty well most of the time. Yeah, and a populist <laughs> backlash on the right with the Tea Party, which we mentioned, but also on the left. Absolutely. I'm quite concerned with this audit the Fed stuff. I think that's a misdirected concern on those sides. The Elizabeth Warren or, or the Bernie crowd, I wouldn't trust them to run the Fed either. And I think it's this idea that somehow the elites are rigging the system. That's often true, but it's less true in the case of the Fed. And if you abolish the Fed, you still have powerful bankers. You saw in the panic of 1907, J.P. Morgan had to step in and solve the problem. And people said, oh, well, he's enriching himself. And he was. He happened to be play the role that a big federal bank would later play. But um, but if you're worried about elites having too much power, getting rid of the Fed doesn't necessarily help that. Yeah. And during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, yes, the Fed did rescue big banks. And those banks make a lot of money. But the alternative was a banking system collapse. Yeah. And that would hurt everybody. I mean, this is, I think, what the critics of that a miss is that the uh, when the banking system collapses, it just spreads out in these concentric circles and the smaller and smaller banks fail and businesses fail and yet people get laid off and there's a lot of pain. And we saw that in the Great Depression. The Fed, back in those days, they didn't really understand how the money supply worked. They really screwed it up. They stood aside and they let one bank after another fail. And that meant people literally lost their life savings. I mean, so the, the pain of what should have been a short-term, maybe a bad recession, but a temporary one, wound up getting extended over more than a decade. Yeah, the alternative to stability and even mediocrity in the financial system is not necessarily things will be better if we have reforms. It could be that things will be a lot worse. Right. And I think sometimes in our national debates, and especially now with so much anger in the country aimed at uh, central government, aimed at politicians, mm -hmm. there's this sense that if we just shake everything up, stuff will be better. Right. No, it's not could always be much worse. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's a, it's a be careful what you wish for. Exactly. Well, Jim, I wish for another great show next week. <laughs> All right. Good. So this is How Do We Fix It? I'm Jim Banks. I'm Richard Davies. Our producer, Miranda Schaefer. And our engineer is Denise Barbarata. Oh, excuse me. Denise Barbarita. Let me start again. And our engineer is Denise Barbarita here at beautiful Mono Lisa Studios in Uptown Manhattan. And our music is by Lou Stravinsky, the show produced by Davies Content. We make digital audio for businesses and nonprofits. Thanks. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for joining us.